The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, it's the .NET Rocks Visual Studio 2010 Road Trip with guest Michelle LaRubustamante, recorded live in Dallas, Texas, Tuesday, April 27, 2010. Carl and Richard are hitting 15 cities in three weeks, recording a new show every day. Follow them in real time online at .netrocks.com slash roadtrip. The .NET Rocks Visual Studio 2010 Road Trip is brought to you by a handful of sponsors, including the following gold sponsor, Telerik. Deliver more than expected. Online at www.telerik.com. Preemptive Solutions, powered by Runtime Intelligence. Online at preemptive.com. And Redgate Software, ingeniously simple tools. Online at red-gate.com. Special support is being provided by the Microsoft Visual Studio team, the Windows Phone 7 team, and the Bing team, who developed the Road Trip Tracker application in Silverlight 4. And now, here's Carl and Richard interviewing Michelle LaRue Bustamante in Dallas, Texas. Hey, Dallas! Welcome to .NET Rocks! See, that so is the a, difference between a pizza be crowd and a barbecue that's crowd. That is a barbecue crowd. That's a barbecue crowd. <laughs> Can we try that again with, yeah! Oh, my God. They're, my son likes biggest, that. Biggest crowd we've had on the road trip yet. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Is <laughs> that a cultural faux pas? And Dallas, uh, we're more refined. We don't do yeehaw. Here. Yeah. <laughs> You're a little more conservative. You go, whoa. Right? <laughs> well, anyway, Richard and I are here in Dallas, and uh, we love Texas. We love Dallas. You guys are awesome. Thank you for the barbecue. And uh, Michelle LaRue Bustamante is our special guest today. Give it up for Michelle. I won't, I won't say yeehaw again. Just, now, I... trivia question. First person who can shout out the answer gets one of these special .NET Rocks Visual Studio 2010 road trip polo shirts. What is extra large, but we have bigger ones in the car, sir. Don't yeah. worry. <laughs> extra large, otherwise known as developer medium. Yes. <laughs> and if worse comes to worse, we'll take two three X's and sew them together for you. So... <laughs> Uh, so who can tell me what Michelle's signature trademark thing to do at the end of every .NET Rocks interview is? Somebody yell it out. Tell a dirty, dirty joke. joke. Tell a dirty, dirty joke. joke. Absolutely. Right. You get a shirt, sir. And I presume you'll deliver. 
live I'll as do well. I'll my best. Are there That's any children here? Yeah. Besides Omar? Mentally, <laughs> emotional children? Raise your hand if you're an emotional child. Okay. All right, one guy in the back. You'll have to leave, sir. It's all right. So, Michelle. <clears throat> Hi. Hi. How's it going? It's going well. How nice are you? Nice to see you guys. <laughs> it's good to see nice you to too, see sweetie. You. Uh, is this our first live show together? I think it's, it is. We've done so, all our shows have always been over the phone, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, whenever we're all in the same place, I think we're too busy drinking to actually record anything. So. Yeah, or probably. Yeah. <laughs> so what have you been doing lately? Uh, wow. That's an open question, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Why not? Uh, let's see. I'm updating my WCF book. Oh, yes. 2010. And uh, thank you. And uh, that's for WCF4. WCF4, exactly. Yeah. And I actually am doing this with one of my colleagues, Mark Michaelis, because otherwise it would have taken way too long because I've got a lot going on. I have uh, my uh, consulting business, you know, I design. I usually uh, spend a lot of time doing architecture consulting for people, uh, focusing on cloud and identity, usually, and WCF. Mm -hmm. And uh, now I have a new business. I'm a partner in a, a security business. We now build product for um, identity and authorization management, which is a very big problem space. So I'm putting all of my talents to good, I think. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's the company's Bitku? Bitku. That's a good name, Bitku. Yeah. I've, had, I've had a chance to look at some of the things you're doing, and I think they're very cool. Yes. Maybe we should talk about them a bit. We can try. Do you still do you find that there's a huge demand for security out there even now? It, well, there's always a demand for security. The question well, is we, what there's kind? a demand, but do people know it? People know it, um, but there's still sort of that 80-20 rule, right? Yeah. You know, if you don't have time to, to build, you know, a large enterprise security solution, 80% of the time username password over SSL or, you yeah. know, secure certificates will work fine. And yeah, then, what more do you need? But... But there is the idea that, you know, if you have a, an enterprise system, you're trying to integrate with partners, you have multiple domains and, and other places where people authenticate to in a real enterprise, right, the corporate enterprise. And you usually have the problem of not wanting to duplicate usernames across multiple locations mm-hmm. and double entry and keeping track of where are all the users and what are they allowed to do in all of these systems anyway. And it's uh, it's a big problem, actually. Yeah. It's a really big problem, but it's made easier if you do things like federated identity. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, it's made even easier if you do have some sort of solution for authorization management, which is sort of, yep. you know, many ways to attack that one. Uh, so, yeah. Do you so. find that the problem is getting through that uh, barrier when you're talking to companies? Because I, I got to imagine that they're very sensitive to being sold a line of fear. You know what I mean? And it's very difficult sometimes for CFOs, CIOs rather, to to take to understand what they need and what they don't need. Well, and you know, change a lot is of difficult too, right? If you already have in place yeah. um, sort of a process where, okay, we know you know how to provision and deprovision users, and we know uh, more or less how to go into each of these applications and manage it, it's a really big shift, right, to take an existing architecture and change it to federate. Um, you can do that by working towards it and and having a migration plan, and and a lot of companies are starting to do that. What I'm finding is a lot of people are interested now and intrigued because what they're noticing is all of the effort it takes to build authorization code into the application, your WCF services, your mm-hmm. ASP.NET apps. They no longer want developers to have to deal with, how did we authenticate? Was it a Windows credential or a right. username and password or a certificate or a smart card or whatnot? So mm-hmm. let's just federate, right? Let's just get them authenticated somewhere else, and that somewhere else can decide what partners we federate with, what domains we trust, et cetera, et cetera. All we need to know is, hey, I got a token. And that token says that I authenticated somewhere and that 
I can trust that they did authenticate and this is who they are more or less, and maybe it also carries information about what they're allowed to do. Uh, or enough information that at the app we can say, okay, I know who you are, I can trust you are who you say you are, mm. and I happen to have a list here of things you're allowed to do. Mm. Or we can go to a central repository that manages all of your you know, authorization rules, and that becomes the place where actual enterprise authorization management takes place, right? They actually go to a UI tool and say, okay, we've got this you know, suite of hundreds of apps, literally, sometimes. Mm -hmm. And you know, here's what so-and-so is allowed to do and so-and-so is allowed to do. And you can have things like you know, um, uh, rules around who's allowed to build, add new users, who's allowed to assign their role to other users, mm -hmm. who's in what role. And there's so many different you know, ways we can talk about that. But, you yeah, start, it's, you're it's starting a, to express the idea that, that putting a login dialog into your app is then a mistake. You don't need to do that. It's done somewhere you else. You kind of don't have to. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and really your mechanism then is just saying, is he authenticated? If he isn't, kick him out to go get authenticated somewhere right. else. Mm -hmm. And right. if he is, does he have permission to play? Right. Exactly. And it makes the developer's job easier because in your WCF services now or in your ASP.NET web apps now, all you care about is, I got a trusted token and here are the claims, right? right? And again, if you need to then take that information and decide what more are they allowed to do just here, if your app knows about those things, then, then you can do that too. But that becomes an easier step. Are we usually talking about the federation server, the, the authentication server inside the firewall, outside, both? Can be either. Yeah. Right? So now with um, access control service, for example, you can federate through the cloud, literally, mm -hmm. um, and let actually, instead of you having to stand up an identity server, right, like a, a mm -hmm. basically an identity provider or a claims transforming engine, you can use the one in the cloud and then tell it to trust other identity providers. So it could be an ADFS v2, it could be a ping identity, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it could be literally anything that implements WS Trust, WS Federation, or SAMLP. And eventually, we'll be able to, you know, federate so, through that. So everything gets hacked that's out there. So what are the risks of, you know, what what's the hacking procedure there? In other words, what are we, you know, what's, how, how does, what am I trying to say here? How is it blah, vulnerable? Blah, blah, blah. What? Yeah, how is it vulnerable? Well, I guess like what anything, security is many, many layers, right? Mm -hmm. um, when you want to trust outside the firewall, there has to be a very strong handshake relationship with, with your application, your company, yeah. and that external entity. Because you need to trust that, for example, if they're going to sign a token with their key, uh, that their key is not going to be compromised in any way. Because right. if their key gets compromised, then in theory, right, you're anybody can, yeah, you're compromised. Right. So you're not going to do that kind of thing lightly, um, right. which is why many people if in high-risk environments, you know, want to host everything themselves. They'll still federate, but they'll install it locally yeah. you know, for that very reason. Well. They'll control it. And, yeah. of course, we, we come up with all this fancy technology for hacking and, you know, smart computers and so forth. But these days it seems like most successful hacking is what they call wrench hacking. And low tech. Yeah, yeah. Very low tech. Make Ren a phone wrench call. hacking being, I lost right. my key. Yeah, I will beat you if you don't give me your password. Right. Or I have a <laughs> sticky note hacking. on my machine with my yeah. username and password because I'm tired of forgetting it. Yeah, you yeah. Know? yeah. I turn your yeah. laptop over and on the sticky note on the other side is all your passwords. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Passwords.txt clearly on your desktop. You go to lunch. It's true. What could that be? Yeah, so I remember hearing a story way back in the beginning of .NET where somebody called up VeriSign and said, uh, yeah, this is whoever from Microsoft. You know, uh, I need a, to replace our, our, our HTTPS uh, certificates because, you know, we, we, I lost them somehow and blah, blah, blah. And can you, 
can you just email them to me? And the idiot on the other end was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so the end result was that anybody who went to Microsoft HTTPS sites and had checked off always trust, you know, content from Microsoft.com was suddenly at risk. So, yeah, yeah, bad. Bad. Not good. Not good. Yeah, protecting keys, key provisioning, key management are probably the biggest problems with any form of security be it federated or not, I think. And it seems like they're very low-tech approaches to, to, you know, before, you know, we can keep them locked in a program somewhere, but educating people on how to treat It's as much a process a as it is a technology. Mm-hmm. You know, like a yeah. private key is only as safe as how well you protect that key. So right. we used to talk about, for example, build machines, right, that actually build our software and put it out, you know, to our production servers, right, before cloud existed when yeah. we did cloud. So you'd have this machine that automated the builds. And then, you know, we actually went to the level of having the password for the build machine, you know, who had root, right, mm. would basically have to go in an envelope sealed in, you mm. know, the CIO's desk and only the person that did the build knew that password. That way, if there was you know, something where he didn't show up, we actually had a place to go to go and get the password and change the password. Yeah. But, I mean, that's a lot of work, right? And that's just one password we're talking about. So, and if you know, he slips people into have to a coma it, one day, you know, then what do you do? It's like, well, that's, you have to have, first of all, trust with them that they haven't changed the password on you yeah. and then that that envelope still has the right password. I mean, that's what I'm saying is that it's, yeah. it, there's a lot of thinking, I think, that goes into you know, that type of uh, management, key yeah. management in yeah. general. Yeah. And ultimately, I think it comes down to, like, one vital piece that has to be protected somewhere. And if whoever the, the, the malcontent is that gets their hands on that one piece, right. they can make all the other dominoes fall to get to, to uh, where right. that is. So now that we've convinced every way, every, everybody that nothing's secure, yeah. um, <laughs> maybe on a lighter note, you might say that security is many layers, right? Uh, every, you know, you've got certainly the certificates that have to sign tokens and so forth, and then mm. you've got uh, your firewall and denial of service attacks and, mm. you know, size of messaging attacks that you're preventing in, in both the software and also at the hardware and firmware level. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, .NET code access security possibly locking down, you know, what assembly are allowed to do in the process and then you've got what the process is allowed to do so if someone hacks the process so I mean we can go down this whole list and if you do kind of a little bit of all of those things or many of those things you're more secure than the next guy and then there's a lot of people out there that all they do is stand up an Azimex service and it's username password and it's SSL and it's quote unquote good enough security Mm -hmm. and it's only a problem when something happens and so now you got to know instead of okay can we solve all problems instead of that how do we react when there's a problem right how are we backing up our data how are we recovering if somebody compromised the server machine how do I rebuild a new machine quickly with new keys and let's face and it, all this that, means for developers yeah. is I'm frustrated because I, <laughs> I can't write code like I want. I just want to write code and watch it run. I don't want to have to, you know. So. Which means they shouldn't necessarily have to worry. I mean, there should be a security person, right, that kind of worries about the architecture of your overall security, yeah. you know, model, if you will, which goes from software to IT and, and database. And, you know, you have a plan for that at all layers. And then hopefully developers shouldn't have to know every in and out of it, but just that, okay, here's how, you know, we're receiving tokens if you were federating, and here's the claims you're going to get. And if you need to handle authorization in your app instead of using a tool, then great. You know, what do we need to do there? And then at that point, you've kind of abstracted the developers working on the business Mm. 
from the security aspect and then well, let they, someone specialize There's a point where they've in. got to say this set of functionality is related to this claim and this set of functionality right. is related to that claim and yeah. so forth. So they actually right. turn off features because you don't have privileges to it. And if you're you know, a one or two man development shop, you're probably not building a healthcare system for a hospital, yeah. which needs to have all of these layers in place, right? I mean, yeah. and if you are, then okay, work hard. Um, <laughs> you know, because uh, uh, that's thinking, a lot of work. I'm thinking of Mr. Hollis, who's right. a team of three, and they build yeah. serious healthcare they applications. Do. Yeah. But they're pretty deeply into that space. Yeah. Uh, is there anything particular in Studio 2010 to do with new insecurity? Did they ship anything in, in the .NET 4.0 framework that we care about? Well, WIF, Windows Identity Foundation, yeah. is not really part of .NET 4. It's no. just a separate download. Yeah. Um, they're out of And band. actually, they actually still need to ship the one that's compatible with .NET 4. I'm using the one for 3.5 with 4.0, but there's a new one that will forthcome. Mm. Um, but otherwise, really, no, nothing specific to... But WCF obviously got a major ref here. But not necessarily with security. I mean, no, WCF, it's not, WCF not security, security is pretty much the way WCF security is. Yeah, I've and, never thought that yeah. security in WCF was a problem. It was just getting mm -hmm. WCF set up in the first place that was the hard part. Yeah, the question is, is WCF hard? Yeah. That's yeah. a good question. Is what that, do you guys think? Is, is WCF, WCF hard? hard? No, because no, no, no. no, uh, read her book. Wait, yeah. who, who said that? That is <laughs> awesome. That's got to be worth a shirt or two. That. That's great. <laughs> www.learningwcf.com right. www <laughs> Wow, the man knows how to get swag. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. So we, you know, we figure that the audience pretty much says no. Does anybody? Okay, who says WCF is easy? Raise your hand. Okay, it's manageable. Yeah, yeah. So you got you got ten percent of the room saying manageable. It's difficult or complex. Complex is a better just word because difficult means you don't get it and you don't want to put but your hand up. But people are complex their... just means it's complex even if you get it. Very few people are raising their hand overall, which means okay. I guess that not a lot How of people How many people not have using WCF? WCF? Who's not using WCF at ah, all? Most how many are... people using Azimax? Any Azimax still out there? How many people not doing services at all? Uh, that's just a couple okay. of hands for no yeah. services. So the rest of you are doing Java services because you're not doing WCF and you're not doing Azimex. So you must be Axis. How many or... people want pecan pie? <laughs> All the hands go up. Excellent. Yeah. So what has changed in four? What so, have they really focused on? Well, four is a number of things. I guess on the on the one end, you might talk about you know large new features like discovery, right, where you can actually expose services and have them discoverable on a subnet. So instead of having to know in a, ahead of time all of the ports and so forth where your services are available, you can discover that dynamically. You're not describing UDDI, are you? Not UDDI because this is on your subnet. Okay. UDDI would be the internet version of that that has failed miserably. Yeah. Um, but you know, behind the, the, the two firewall, guys who use it, love useful. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. UDDI they was, do, don't both they? guys, they're really happy. UDDI yeah. was one of the cornerstones of the .NET triangle or whatever it was way back in .NET 1.0 days. And right. It was a way for web services to be discovered. Right. It's like a little DNS server for, for, uh, web, services. for web services. But, but who really discovers about. dynamically services publicly on the web? I mean, normally yeah, you know who you want to partner with. You know right. which services you want to use. And Unless it's, it's even it's even you know a complete dream or, or to, to consider the idea that partners working for different companies would actually implement the same contract, right? right? I mean, that was a dream back in the day. I worked in the insurance space, and we thought, oh, we'll just build you know, a contract, and that'll be what all the partners do. Yeah. But they don't want to do that because they want to have their own proprietary you know, enhancements and so on. So right. 
Yeah, so you can't just move an endpoint from here to here between partners. It'll never happen, probably. So it's this discovery yeah. mechanism. In but discovery is more for you. You know, like I have customers, for example, that build an ecosystem of services within, you know, a machine even, or maybe a couple of machines within a subnet, mm. and they just, it's a configuration nightmare, you mm -hmm. know, when, when you're moving things around or whatnot. So they want to be able to stand up new server endpoints and have them just discovered and available. PubSub is a good example of that, right, if you're doing publish-subscribe patterns. So, yeah, so using discovery is good for that. And then there's a router. So mm -hmm. all the stuff I wrote about routing still matters, but now they <laughs> built the actual router service piece and put it into, you know, the platform. So it's easier to build a router that passes through. So I would use a router for things like um, in the web server tier, you know, between the two firewalls and the DMZ, sometimes that's a useful thing for receiving messages that come into the, you know, from the internet and then maybe authenticating there and then forwarding to the backend services. So right. that way you've got your DMZ, if you will. Um, another way to get the same DMZ is to put those services behind the second firewall in the cloud using the service bus, which means the service is still on your premise, but you're just using the service bus as a stopgap for denial of service attacks and things like that. Which so is the pounding happens on the cloud machine, and exactly. only the legitimate claims go back right. into your. And then you've got to use one of those SHA-256 tokens to call the service bus, um, and it's all handled by the bindings, more or less. Mm. Uh, so that's an interesting model that takes away the need to use the router in the DMZ, kind of like that. <coughs> Um, and then other major features, they focus a lot on making it easier to configure WCF. So I would say that was really achieved by removing the need to, let's say you did Asimex, right? If you did ASP.NET Web Services, all you had to do is what? You know, you stand up a, a service, you've got a class, you implement methods, you didn't worry about decorating your types with a bunch of, you know, yeah. contracts and so forth, right? No, just said you could. Yeah, you just said web method, and and your your types would just serialize automatically all the public members. That as was long automatic. As long as serializable types, yeah. Right, so WCF in 3.5 introduced the plain old CLR object type, which means you didn't need a data contract, and any public member would serialize just like Asimex. And then the next step would be, you know, how about I get a default binding that just works? So basically right. I create a new WCF service, and by default I get basic HTTP binding, yeah. mm -hmm. which is, and then I get an automatic endpoint, and the automatic endpoint is basically my virtual directory, right? Yeah. So it makes sense, and then my binding is just basic HTTP. So there's no security, which is exactly the same as Azimax. So, right. Convention over configuration. Yeah. So you're words, basically getting work. exactly what you would have got with Azimax. Five yeah. years ago. Right. Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> but nobody wants Azimax if they're going to WCF. I mean, right. they want that for the feel-good experience because, you know, who wants to try something over and over and over and not be successful right. and say, okay, forget WCF, I can't figure it out, right? But are so there configurators out there and wizards that help us? We've been asking for them for a long time. You know, uh, not exactly yet. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm working on a couple of things. You are. Nice Tell segue, us. Carl. Tell us. <laughs> Uh, well, so part of our, uh, part of my uh, new partnership, my Bitku product company, is that we're, we do security software, but we're working on some community things. And one of those things, just because of stuff we're working with with customers. So we're going to make available some templates that just automatically configure, you know, good scenarios for security and such. Um, so never mind product, right? It's just about raw WCF security, internet, intranet, certificates, you know, federation, and just a template that works. Nice. So uh, that's coming live before TechEd. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the new TFS Work Item Manager and TFS Project Dashboard. So if you're spending a lot of time on organizing the cluttered pile of work items in TFS, get ready for a fresh and intuitive experience.
The guys at Telerik just launched the TFS Work Item Manager and Project Dashboard, a couple of free tools designed to make working with Team Foundation Server faster and easier. Unlike the standard TFS Explorer, the Work Item Manager lets you take advantage of powerful capabilities like filtering, as you type search, grouping and aggregation, and iteration scheduling. You can even see all the work items in a Scrum dashboard view, as if watching the whiteboard in your own room. Project Dashboard is a unique tool for visualizing TFS data. Useful for both developers and project managers, it helps you keep track of the latest TFS project activity like current iteration progress, build history, recent check-ins, assigned tasks, and bug history, and to understand the health of the project as a whole. The TFS tools are brought to you by Telerik and Imaginet, the experts in application lifecycle management. Built with RAD controls for WPF, they're both amazingly flexible and responsive. Go to Telerik.com and download the TFS tools for free. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Anybody want one of those? Yeah. A template that's just a secure well, yeah, just, connection to WCF? If just hands. a free template. Just yeah. gives you an example, right? Yeah. And it's kind of taken from stuff I've done already, you know, with the book and things through the years. It just It's an example yep. that's a template. And, you know, take it as that because if you look at WS Star, there's a million ways to send a username and password or a certificate. Mm-hmm. And you only really need, you know, to know about one or two of those things. The rest, at that point, you're in advanced territory anyway, right? Yeah. There must be 50 ways to send a yeah. message. <laughs> If I could sing, I would have done that. <laughs> Not going to happen. Yeah. No. That's I name. can't tell jokes, though, so we're okay. I think if my son cries when I sing a lullaby. It must be something. <laughs> voice. <laughs> no, not really. I'm just making that up. I had a mom like that once. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Get those faraway eyes going. Yeah, I guess there. I can tell a joke. Yeah, there you go. Who knew? Yep. So. So, so up- updating the book, doing some cool security stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's uh, all? That's all you do? Boring. Cloud computing. So how does cloud computing really fit into this whole equation? And we're hmm. not just talking Azure here. You're doing all sorts of other Well, I, so I'm mo- mostly focusing on Microsoft. So back in, you know, say 1999 before cloud computing existed, mm-hmm. I had to put services live in, you know, to the internet and integrate with partners and handle all the 24-7 nonsense and actually buy very expensive machines so that I could prove to my customers they could trust me, that we could scale, and I had to write up 60-page service level agreements to make sure that they knew, you know, how we backed up and recovered and where the data was and how we secured the actual physical machines, you know, with handprint readers walking into the colo and, and all this stuff. you had time to reproduce? <laughs> well, good God, woman! <laughs> I said 1999, my child is two. So um, maybe that explains that. There you go. I'm done with this stuff. (laughs) So, but anyway, I mean, the cloud would have been ideal, right? Instead of spending $750,000 on like all this equipment to prove to customers that never sent that much data as it was, that they thought they would. Right. Um, You know, if you could instead build a similar result with with the cloud, like today, where you can scale up when you need it and you can explain to them instead how I can scale when you need me to. Right. And instead of me going to vendors and saying, how quick can I get a replacement machine if something goes wrong with my equipment? 
you know, I can just say, hey, I'm in the cloud, right? And if I need more, I'll spin them up, and Microsoft has all kinds of boxes ready to go. Mm. So this is a dream come true for companies that need that, right? Like, So I lived that. I don't think everybody's in that situation, but I mm. think it's a good example of a way a small company can, can present like they can scale and really deliver on that, right? I, I think the far more compelling side of this so. is spinning down, is that when I'm not using it, I can shut it off. Yeah. Because when we not own pay. the gear... Mm. We provision for peak load, right? We spend all the money and all the gear for the peak load, and you might as well leave it on. You own it. Right. right. Exactly. But it, with the cloud scenario, I can shut stuff off and not pay for it. Right. And actually, you know, be a small business, not spending a lot of money. And then when I have a big contract and a big demand come in, I light more stuff up, and yeah. it's straight cost of operations. Yeah. And I mean, literally, we used three percent, probably. Yeah, that's the of, thing that kills you. the CPU mm. and memory mm. after all that money spent, it's a shame, isn't it? <laughs> but we had no choice. Yeah. Big companies, big right. gorilla, saying, "Hey, you know, we're not going to do business with you unless we know." So it's a real problem. Mm. Yeah. And you're finding that the, the federated side of this, like the fact that, that that stuff is living outside of your firewall. You can pretty much make it transparent. Like you can't. Well, federation tell that it's up there. can go inside or outside mm-hmm. as long as there's the trust. So that's more about business trust than anything. That's not something that um, there's no technology speaking. You know, it's just HTTP. Right. Really. Right. Yeah. I'm going to federate over HTTP with this server or that server. As long as we have trust, we're good. As long as we trust the cert used to sign the you know, token, yeah. and we're good. I'm just thinking from a developer's um, perspective, right. I want to not know that this was it's in the cloud. It's seamless. It should yeah. just happen. It's seamless to the developer pretty much, right? Yeah. That's pretty so, cool. So that's, that's irrelevant. But, um, but in the cloud, you know, you've got your idea of hosting, and then you've got the idea of using data, mm-hmm. uh, maybe scaling out your SQL Server story, for example. I mean, you could have it on-premise and then maybe go to the cloud as needed so you can have other locations or something like that. It's an idea, right? Some people are using it as a replication capability. Um, so you still have the main on-premise, and then it's your growth it's model. It's almost like a, yeah, like a content delivery yeah. system where I want to keep the They data. have content delivery, too, yeah. actually, for media, which is actually very cool. Um, mm-hmm. That's on the Azure side, though. That's it's just, in beta, though, right? Uh, yeah, I believe. yeah, that's in beta. Yeah. It's uh, part of the blob storage, right. right? So you can have blobs that just, you know, you can have the content shipped all over and cached, yeah. and you can control how long you want that caching to be and so forth. Yeah. So you've done a lot of architectural design for some pretty complex systems. I imagine some had to be really challenging. What was the most, if, you, if there's one that pops out as, the, like, the most ridiculous challenge that you had to architect? Hmm. and how how it finally worked out? Probably... Um, you don't have to name the company, of course. No, no, no. Couldn't do that. Um, so probably it was a completely, absolutely asynchronous model. Uh, everything pub-sub, uh, a message box in the middle that you know we had to uh, do calculations across multiple many servers, so the idea of velocity in a way only mm. for calculations. So mm-hmm. you're distributing engines and, and spinning up as many as you need to, to perform all these calculations, so finance-related. Um, and then as each piece completed, it had to send notifications, and we had to collect those in, a, in an ESB. And it was all built from scratch with MSMQ. Uh, as that point instead of TIBCO, and the reason was that TIBCO, you know, provides that 
idea of a message bus, but it, it, it's heavier, you know, it's already got a, a configurator, if you will, and it's already got sort of its rules and how it works, and there wasn't as much control over how we handled the messaging, and we wanted everything to fly through fast, no transactions, you know, that kind of thing. It didn't need mm. to be transactional, because one missed message, we could get another, the next one, so it was mm. kind of like that. Um, so it was a very interesting application in the sense that literally everything from client down through the calculation engines, through other parts of the system and back was all async. And you so had it's to like one big multi-threaded kind absolutely of mess. No. Yeah. Well, in the order of return yeah. didn't matter. You reassembled. One yeah, exactly. Other. So the, the complexity was really more in the planning around the reassembly mm. and, and that kind Very of thing. Very parallel really. computing-ish. Yeah, right? exactly. Breaking that workout. Yeah. So that was probably the, one of the most interesting ones for and, sure. And you threw a couple of key terms in there like ESB. Think. Mm-hmm. The service bus concept's been around for quite a while, but yeah. Microsoft's finally got one that seems to matter, the .NET service Ah, but bus. the service bus in the cloud is a much different animal because what that's doing really right now, I mm -hmm. mean, it does have message buffers and such, but, you know, they're not durable message buffers by any means. You know, the messages do expire. Mm -hmm. um, but it does give you a very, very important feature, and that is if I have services, you know, behind a dynamic IP uh, which is more of a small-time situation, yeah. or if I have services behind a second firewall behind the DMZ, it's really easy for me to expose those to the Internet now. And even more important, my clients can do PubSub now um, over TCP even and open up that socket from the client, make the call out, to a service bus endpoint and have it relay back. So now I can have callbacks through the cloud as well, mm, that's cool. which is really cool because that's traditionally really hard to, yeah, to make hard. possible. Yeah. yeah. How's it? I'm just thinking, how does it doing that? Is it polling for the callback? No, no, no. I mean, TCP is, is full duplex, right? right. So it supports so it that. But connected. because you've got the the ability to host endpoints in the cloud, for example, I could do from a client machine, I could host a service. So I'll give you an example. I was at a company uh, that was highly locked down just a couple of weeks ago and literally so locked down that there was things we couldn't do on the demo boxes because even though they were admins on the machine, something else was an overall policy for the subnet restricting all kinds of activity, controlling what we did with IIS, such things. Mm -hmm. I say that because I was still able to host from my machine, you know, services, and from a client machine, Over non services, ports. and get it out through that, through the internet into the service bus. So, I mean, I, I'm not huh. saying, you know, that nobody would ever be able to lock down those ports, but just that they're typically ports that are available. So it gives you the ability to build interesting client apps that can receive notifications. And that seems to be a very popular thing these days, you know, having, uh, yeah, having, having PubSub, you know, right. be not just callbacks, which is transient, but durable PubSub, right? So. Yeah, the big, the big concern for most developers is can I get the message back? Mm -hmm. Did you succeed? Mm -hmm. Right. Which typically when you go asynchronous with these PubSub models, it's all one way. Yeah. I sent it off and I hope a lot. Right. right? I hope it, it does well, get done. Well, and the thing is, is people are dealing with so much more data now. You really want to send a message, be done with it, let the UI continue to process, let users do stuff and, mm -hmm. and get mm -hmm. stuff back, right? And you're getting maybe large, large lists of things. So you want to receive chunks of data whenever there's time to process that, but let the user still interact otherwise. So, um, I mean, talking about interesting applications, I mean, I, I do have a customer right now that I'm building uh, software. I, I work with him every year, actually, doing new designs. And this guy is like insane about performance. I mean, every single list box is async in terms of the way we wow. populate the data hmm. coming back. It's phenomenal. 
Wow. Uh, so, I mean, you can do pretty interesting things. And with the service bus, so he's all over the cloud now, right? Because, you know, we want to be able to have this work at all client application, at all client uh, locations. And since you don't own the environment, it's hard to know what can you do in terms of opening ports from the client app. So this is really a cool thing. Yeah. Do you do much work in SharePoint for your client applications? I don't personally do SharePoint. Um, we have products, for example, you know that that deal with authentication, uh, you know, in SharePoint. But mm -hmm. I'm not the person that does that. Yeah. No. SharePoint free. Yeah. SharePoint free I'm zone. SharePoint free. Anybody who's uh, using SharePoint, doing SharePoint development, specifically writing components in there? Just a couple a people. Couple of hands. Mm -hmm. Well, you really like the tools in Visual Studio 2010, then I'm sure. Yeah. Good it's stuff. Better. Is there new stuff in 2010? There is new stuff in 2000. Are you using 2010 now for anything? Yeah, of course. For what? Just the WCF4 Everything stuff? Everything I do. Yeah, but no SharePoint. No, I don't do SharePoint. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, You can, you can only do so do many Do you do things. SharePoint, Richard? I don't do SharePoint. No, I don't do SharePoint. Yeah. Just, just saying. Just saying. Yeah. It's time to start saying... Don't go there. Yeah, right? don't need to go there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got other things to work I, on. Yeah. You know, I never basically have any free time for my poor little child if I yeah. did more than what I already do. Mm -hmm. Does he do SharePoint? He doesn't. <laughs> but you know, he likes computers. I'll tell you what, nothing lights up his face more, well, besides my face, uh. Uh, than coming in to my office. <laughs> and he sees all the computers. Wow. Yeah, the problem Computer! Is <laughs> Baby smash. Yeah. Oh, he's all over that. Yeah, that, buttons, he, buttons. Yeah. No, no, don't touch that. I said, no, no, don't touch that. Uh-uh. Server goes, yeah. All done. See that? My younger daughter quickly figured out at probably about 18 months that if she hit the big red button on yeah. the gray box, daddy got really excited. Yeah. <laughs> and that was exactly. fun. Yeah. And he did like Baby Smash, actually. We, yeah. we, we installed that. That was a good one. I used to talk to my three-year-old daughter through the Microsoft Agent. Remember the little thing, the text-to-speech wizard that would fly around the screen? Mm -hmm. Hello, Emmeline. How are you today? <laughs> she loved it. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I want cool. to talk to Merlin, she'd say. Yeah, she doesn't want to talk to you. Yeah, no, not at all. Now she's boring. a teenager. She still doesn't now, watch it. Everyone talks to me now, anyway. Yeah. Did you do that with Bob too? Bob? No, I, I I completely bypassed Bob. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I wonder if anyone even knows what Bob was anymore. Yikes. Uh, Bob. There's a few Bob outs out there. Yeah. So we got a few minutes left. I think we're due for a joke. Ah. I was going to ask the audience if they had any questions. Does anybody have a question? Come on up here, sir. Because I can't up. seem to untangle myself. Oh, he's like, I don't want to ask now right, if I have to go. walk up there. there <laughs> I, I just I ate feedback. barbecue. Yeah, the uh, U.S. government has its first uh, ever uh, chief technology officer, mm -hmm. and that's because of the uh, importance of what's happening with uh, international cyber attack. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, you're saying you're at a security uh, company. Mm -hmm. There are any special unique problems that you're facing with uh, those type of transactions coming across in different countries internationally? And if you do have unique problems, you have unique solutions for that? So we don't really deal with hacking. That's not our business model. What we deal with is uh, identity and authorization management. So think of trying to manage an overall policy for your whole, your whole company, 200 apps. And you need a single dashboard to go to and you know, basically configure you know, who's allowed to do what in every single one of those apps in an easy way and have a single policy be able to export it 
you know, save it, import it, have it across multiple redundant servers, that kind of thing. There's a lot of accountability there, too. So yeah. if something happens, and everything's you know audited. Like yeah. everything you do, you assign a user. So audit trail is huge. Um, so we deal with things like that. Um, you know, separation of duties. Uh, so you got you know, clear rule, evidence trail. Rules around being... evidence and rules mm-hmm. around authorization and identity management is also supported, like gathering attributes from different data stores like SAP and, you know, AD and, and where, wherever you need to. So supporting all the main protocols like, you know, WS Federation, Trust, SAML P, uh, that kind of thing. So you have a clear record of being hacked. Yeah. Yes. Right. We know exactly what happened. We you know, don't know exactly how. what happened and when it happened. Yeah. Right. Because right. Clergy, you know, that definitely and, and you can think of it like making federation easy. Like you don't have to know all the protocols unless you want to get in there. Right. And open it up. So. And what is that URL so. of your, uh, your website? Oh, um, that would be just go bitku.com. K O O. B I T. K O O. Bitku. B I T K O O.com. Thank you. Anybody else have a question for Michelle? Come on up here, sir. I got the urge to do a beatbox. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, recently, like, uh, we did some evaluations on the Amazon services on the cloud. And uh, we found out like we are going to save a ton of money in storing just the data on the cloud. Mm-hmm. Right. And what we did was like uh, we evaluated the cost and it came to be around less than more than we save hundred more than hundred percent of of cost. Mm-hmm. Like internal storage was around four thousand bucks a month, and if we put it in Amazon, it's just a hundred dollars a month. But the problem in selling this idea to security to our corporate organization is like, how do we get passed through the security of data storage? Like uh, the data that we put in Amazon, I, we don't know whether it is secure, right? And only way to mitigate this risk is like uh, they are serving us some kind of a agreement saying that your data will be secured. They have a service level agreement. Yeah, probably. but but none of the statement in the SLAs doesn't say anything about your data is secure. Okay, right? so, so this is a problem. Exactly. Uh, what you're talking about is how detailed of a service level agreement can you get from a cloud vendor? And there's a fine line there, because if they share too much information with you it's in a way exposing risk to everybody that hosts with them. They don't want to give you the details, say I gave someone about, you know, I had a handshake agreement with one or two vendors, you know, well, more like 10, but still they were our vendors, our customers, and we said here is how we handle co-location, storage, backup, recovery. If Microsoft or Amazon does that, that's like who knows how many thousands and thousands or more. Uh, so, so I think that it's going to be hard to get a statement that's very specific to your needs. You're going to have to deal with the service levels they give you, and then you're going to have to write an augmenting service level agreement that sort of explains how you'll recover if they screw up. That's probably the attack you need to play instead, you know. And of course, at some point, people that trust you have to trust that. I mean, is Amazon or Microsoft really going to? You know, could they screw up? Sure, but no different than you could screw up, right? So everybody can screw up. The question is, how do you recover? Yeah? I, I would go about that tack. You know, the, the other side of this is having a third party that certifies that they are protecting the data well, and so you only have to tell one person all your details and they keep it secret as well. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that that party exists right now. Mm-mm. You know, yeah. we talk about trust Things will evolve and, in the and cloud. PCI, you know, in terms of managing credit cards correctly, yeah. but we don't, we don't really have this for cloud yet. 
Yeah, I think I think there will come a time when this evolves to a point where not only will pricing change across the board, you know, as it evolves and as more people are using it, but uh, I think that a lot of things will evolve in terms of service levels and trust yeah. and guarantees and and even you know uh, force majeure, you know how how they compensate you, maybe even monetarily if something mm-hmm. goes wrong. I mean, there's all kinds of potential there. Mm-hmm. One but more kind of new. Okay, another question from the audience. A code access security was taken out of .NET 4.0 or if it was uh, deprecated for some reason? Do you know the reasons why they were doing that or was it too hard? Or Did anybody here use Kodak security before .NET 4? Because it so 4? bad. Yeah. Oh. Okay, so when .NET came out, we all did talks at conferences and you know this. Yeah. Talking about how cool it was to be able to manipulate the code access security policy. I don't think policy I ever used the word cool, Michelle. <laughs> well, those of us that liked that kind of stuff did. Okay, you know, you got to get excited about your technologies that you like. I was just excited to understand it. You yeah. Know? Okay. Brent well, there's that. Maybe that's why we were excited. Oh yeah. my God, I get it. Let's go talk about right, it. Right. Right. <laughs> So, but we did. We talked about it like, okay, this is how you'll manipulate your application so that you only turn on exactly the code access security requirements mm. you need. Mm-hmm. And then what did everybody do? Full trust. Full because trust. it's too painful. It's yeah. too and hard. then click once. Oh, right. there's I, a calculator. A useless calculator, but a calculator. <laughs> you hit the button. You did a demo. People said, wow, is that ever cool? I can actually figure out. No, you can't because you're <laughs> referencing other assemblies that reference other assemblies and that have dynamic demands and things will still right. fail. So it's almost impossible to figure out all no. the potential demands. So the only thing about code access security that's really useful is the principal permission, you know, like right. the security principle attached to the thread that carries the claims or the roles or, you know, the information about the authenticated user, which is still part of CAS. It's just not the part you're talking about, which is the policy part. And that was just useless there's no other word for it yeah it's just impossible yeah to use all right i think it's joke time michelle what do you got what do you got for us Ooh, okay jokes jokes uh sir this is your cue to leave okay just scared. all right okay i used to be a bartender and i'm blonde so i can do those kind of jokes sure uh guy walks into a bar says bartender give me a drink before there's any trouble bartender gives him a drink shoots it back give me another drink before there's any trouble Gives him another drink, puts it back. Suggest you give me another drink before there's any trouble. Puts it back. Excuse me, sir, but when's there going to be trouble? When you find out I have no money. (laughs) 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 It's kind of a clean one. Um, Sometimes I keep it clean. So uh, let's see. Blonde. Blonde joke. Um, I'm allowed to do that. So this blonde calls her boyfriend. She says... Come on over, I need some help. I got this wicked jigsaw puzzle, and I want to figure out how to put it together. And he says, well, what's the puzzle you know, going to be? And he says, I think from the look of the box, it's a tiger. So he comes over you know, and takes a look at the table. All the jigsaw pieces are all over the place. And he says, honey, I want you to make yourself a cup of cocoa. Relax. And I want you to know that we're never going to put this puzzle together. It's impossible. <laughs> And I want you to put all the frosted fakes back in the box. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to thank Michelle LaRubastamante for joining us. Give her a big hand. Thank you. We'll see you next time on .NET Rock!
Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. Dotnet Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the 